hours every weekday, covering everything from Torah, Parsha, holidays, and so much more. This is 101.9 High FM, Soul to Soul. And good afternoon, good yamtiv, good year. You're wondering what on earth are you talking about? I'm Rabbi Ari Kievman, and Shana Tova. I wish you all a sweet good year. And I'm not talking about January 1st, still a couple of weeks away. And you're thinking Rosh Hashanah was a few weeks ago. What's going on here? Well, today is the Rosh Hashanah of Hasidus. And in the last two weeks, we've been talking a little bit about the Hasidic Renaissance, about the the power, the controversy that was related to the introduction of the Hasidic movement and how today it's become so prevalent in a way of life. So today, Yud Tes Kislev, the 19th in the month of Kislev, is a Hasidic festival. And in that sense, I think everyone could rejoice on this day because the teachings of Hasidus, as we have talked about the history of how it came from a very difficult time uh, just two centuries ago and how things changed so dramatically and drastically since then, and how Hasidus has really become a way of life, I think, for all Jews. And just to recap some of the ideas we discussed, today marks the liberation of the Alter Rebbe. He was arrested in 1798 when he was slandered, when he was charged with uh, various accusations and allegations, which were not done by some anti-Semites, some Jew haters, but rather by fellow Jews. In fact, there was a particular Jew from Vilna, you know, the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, himself was a Litvak, a Lithuanian Jew, and a fellow Lithuanian, a Jew, who signed his name, uh, I think it was Yitzchak ben Davida, I've got to recall, but not really that that's important who it was, who slandered him to the Russian government. And when he was finally freed on this day, the Alter Rebbe demanded from his Hasidim that they express their love, not to take re- not to take revenge and exact retribution, and to continue the cycle of violence of hatred, but rather to judge even those misnagdim, those who were Hasidically challenged, those who caused such anguish to the Rebbe and his followers rather to judge them favorably. And even though, yes, they caused them great distress, but he said, this is the mitzvah. This is the obligation of Avas Yisrael to love your fellow as yourself. And it's possible to achieve this love when we consider the unbreakable soul-based brotherhood that we have. If we see ourselves as just different people and continue the fragmentation in the community, then of course we could continue the machlekas, the conflict, the controversy, the faribles, the fights. But the Rebbe stressed and begged and pleaded with his followers rather to consider that restraint. And with that, he taught a very powerful concept, the idea of moach shalit alalev, which means our mind should control our emotions. If we use our intellect and think why am I feeling in a particular way? Then we won't necessarily always act on our feelings because you use your brain, your intellect, your cognitive ability to control those emotions and feelings. And so we say, Mach, the brain must control the heart. 
not the other way around where our feelings, where I just have this instinct. I have to do what I want to do. Instinctively, if somebody hurts me, if somebody slanders my Rebbe, then I might feel, and certainly many followers did, that's why he penned this letter, I might feel like I want to take revenge. I want to exact retribution. I want to do, I want to retaliate. But the Rebbe stressed his Hasidim that that's not the way to do it. And so he clarified, in addition to that, that the Ga'on of Vilna, Rabbi Eliyahu, was, had nothing to do with his arrest and were never allowed in his lifetime any sort of thing like this to ever happen. So he reiterated his warning and pleaded and begged with his followers that they should in no way continue the cycle of violence, the hatred, the animosity, the machlaikas. And towards the end of his life, the Alter Rebbe again penned a very important letter, and he passed away in approximately January of 1803, on the 24th of Tevis. And he told us Hasidim that it's now we see how Hasidus, the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov, have become so widespread that they've indeed ultimately infiltrated and impacted the Jewish community in a tremendous way. And so I think it's important to get an idea, especially after understanding what happened in the time of the Baal Shem Tov introducing the Hasidic teachings, why he introduced his teachings, where, what was it about? And I think with that, one could really gain a proper appreciation of some of the fundamental ideas that Hasidus introduced, which, by the way, were universal Jewish concepts and ideas, but it was a, the point was to really stress those points, to just emphasize them. In fact, if you look at the magnum opus of the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, besides for his very famous work of Jewish legal laws, the Shulchan Aruch, Code of Jewish Living, he also wrote the Tanya. The Tanya, very popular work. You know what name he called it? Tanya is a popular name for the book because that's the opening word is of the first chapter that we learn. And, you know, it says Tanya, we learned, quoting the Talmud. And as we continue, he quotes from all different places. And the name he called the book was Lukute Amarim, a compilation of teachings, of sayings. So in a sense, Hasidus was not necessarily introducing any new teachings, but it was emphasizing previous very well-known teachings, but really emphasizing them and making it a way of life, not just ideas. So to understand where and how the Hasidic movement and its teachings came about, let's go back a little bit into history. And if you go back to the mid-1300s, you're looking at the 14th, 15th, 16th, and even part of the 17th century. In fact, I would go all the way to the year of the famous Chmelnitsky massacre, which happened in 1648. The Jewish population of Poland, which, by the way, at that time included parts of Ukraine and Lithuania, and was often called the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, they experienced the golden age of that time there. In fact, for Jews there, they really found life very pleasant. You think about life here in South Africa today, how really comfortable it is with wonderful organizations like the Hever Kadisha stating, no Jew left behind, or all the activities Chabad House offers from young to old, 
and the variety of organizations we have in this community providing for every need of every single Jew. Indeed, no Jew is left behind. And Jews living in Poland during that period, I think if you read about life back then, they really found life relatively peaceful. The There was economic stability. Things went well. They had a community organizations that took care of every need of people in the community. Torah scholarship was so widespread. Yeshivas, people were able to study. There was so much good going on for the Jewish community. And then, in 1648, as I mentioned, Jewish life began to decline. Things took a turn really far deep south, both materially and spiritually. So, if you think about some of the great personalities who lived during that time, whether it was the Shach and the Taz and the, the, the author of the Ramah, the, author, the co-author of Shulchan Aruch, so many others who, they're just considering what life was like then for Jews living in Poland and Lithuania during that period, it was really, truly incredible. It was a life... That was very impressive. Beginning in the 14th century, there was a mass migration from Central Europe to Poland. And Jews came in mass to the country. Especially considering what was going on in other parts of Europe with expulsions of Jews with the Inquisition happening in Spain, with Jews being expelled from England, with German Jews going through their troubles during post the Crusades. It wasn't pleasant to many places where Jews were. We were constantly on the go, wandering Jew. And then Jews landed in Poland. And the Ramah, Rabbi Moshe Isselis, noted that there was a relative lack of anti-Semitism in Poland compared to Germany, compared to other countries in those days. And he actually wrote in one of his works, in the Shilas Achuvas, the response of the Ramah, he writes that this is his hope it would continue this way till Mashiach comes. Unfortunately, not all our hopes are fulfilled because we know how the tides turned in Poland years later. But during those centuries, during that time, the Jews living in Poland they really had it good and they dubbed Poland. They used a, a Hebrew word for it. They called Polin. Polin means here we're able to live through the difficulties, through the night of exile in relative comfort. So this golden age wasn't only due to the relatively positive, good material conditions that Jews had in those days, but it was also a spiritual golden age then. Some of the Commentators at that time describe how the community was so well looked after. And here's one example from Rabbi Nassim Nata Hanover, who was one of the great 17th century Polish rabbinic figures. And I just want to read a little excerpt for you, to you from the way he described life in Poland back then. And he says, with regards, with respect to Torah, in no country was the study of Torah so widespread amongst Jews as it was then in Poland. Every Jewish community maintained a yeshiva. They paid its head a large salary to enable him to devote himself to the yeshiva without any worry. 
Every community had young men whom they supported with a weekly stipend so they could learn with the head of the yeshiva. Describes there was scarcely a house in all of Poland where the Torah was not studied, either by the head of the house, by the son, by the son-in-law, by the yeshiva student who was boarding in the home. Frequently, all of them could be found under one roof studying Torah together. And he describes here how one of the great rabbis who led a large yeshiva, he supported his students, all of them in full, sort of what the kolal system is like today. He supported them both spiritually by maybe with farbrengans and events and having spiritual mentors and physically took care of their food. All their living conditions were all taken care of. In a sense, the way many of the kolos operate today, where young rabbinic scholars are able to study Torah and their family needs are taken care of or supported by the community or by the heads of that kolel who maintain or run it. And it's unbelievable how he describes. I'll just give you a quick description as we're going to take a quick break in a moment. He talks about with prayer. First was the group that rose before dawn to pray and lament the loss of the Holy Temple. At dawn, there was a group that rose to recite Tehillim for about an hour before the prayers, concluding the book each week that would finish the entire book of Tehillim. No one missed the time of prayer at the shul unless there was some great emergency. And when one went to shul, they didn't leave to work before hearing words of Torah. People lived a dedicated, committed Jewish life. He talks about with charity, there was no limit to the amounts of charity that were distributed in Poland and describes many of the communal foundations and institutions that supported those who were less fortunate. Many men, women, children, everyone was engaged in the mitzvah of Torah. And that's part of the description of what life was like back then. When we're back, we'll talk about what changed. Stay relevant and up to date. This is 101.9 High FM. For weekly insights on the Parsha as it relates to women, stay tuned Friday mornings at 10 a.m. when Mushy Lipsker unveils the Parsha Hashavua for the fairer sex. This is Soul to Soul on 101.9 High FM. Wow. Welcome back. It's Rabbi Ari Kivan here. We're talking soul to soul. Today is Yud Tes Kislev, the Chag HaGaula, the Rosh Hashanah of Hasidic teachings. And we're going a little bit into the history of the Hasidic movement. And there is so much to talk about. So I'm going to try to summarize and really give it to you in a nutshell today because, like I said, there's just so much. We could look, go back to 1648, as I was describing before. And unfortunately, Jewish life in Poland, in Eastern Europe, began to decline. And although many Jews prior to that were involved in many industries, some people were tax collectors on behalf of the Polish nobility. And many Jews at that stage, well, suffered terribly. And I don't know the exact numbers, but there was a certain frustration amongst the Ukrainian Cossacks. They were mad at the Polish nobility. And unfortunately, because Jews were doing well with the Polish nobility at the time, Jewish life took a hit when a very famous anti-Semite by the name of Chmelnitsky, Bogdan Chmelnitsky, decided to express his anger against the Polish nobility. And unfortunately, when they do so, his uprising, his pogroms and demonstrations unfortunately took with it many, many Jewish lives, and that led to the overall deterioration 
of the communal well-being. The study of Torah, you can imagine, became a luxury when many families were decimated, losing many family members. The survivors had to pick up the pieces, had to support their families, had to go to work, and the Jewish community was really, truly suffering. You can imagine the psychological damage, you can imagine how vulnerable they were, and the emotional anguish that comes with such terror, a massacre of tens of thousands of Jews during that time. So, unfortunately, Torah study took a hit as well. Many Jews who were working had no time for Torah study, and thus ignorance was rampant in the community. With ignorance comes other issues and other problems. Along came a man by the name of Shabtai Tzvi in 1665. You're looking at 15 years after this massacre. Comes along a man living in the Ottoman Empire, and he declares himself as Mashiach. This fellow Shabtai Tzvi, he traveled, became very well known throughout Europe, and he started to gather a major following of Jews. People were following him. He was an erratic, interesting personality. And uh, some people think, you know, today that probably he suffered from some kind of bipolar disorder. But his devout followers really felt that these were signs of some kind of advanced spiritual state of elevation. And people thought, you know, here's a man who seemed to be well-versed, scholarly, and had many things going for him, popular, and you know, um, charismatic, sophisticated, attracting a large following. And they thought this guy might be the Mashiach that he claims to be. And the news spread all over the Jewish community from country to country. People were finally being comforted from the aftershocks of the Chmelnitsky massacres. And of course, that news resonated with the Polish Jews. So many reeling from those events but unfortunately, this excitement didn't last too long because in February 1666, the Sultan of Turkey, Istanbul, or maybe it was called Constantinople back then, he actually, getting a little concerned about this man, made him an ultimatum and offered him either you convert to Islam or be executed. And the choice that Shabtai Tzvi took was conversion to Islam. You can imagine what, how that left the rest of the community when this Mashiach of theirs converts to another religion. The Jews were broken, utterly devastated. And this devastation is described in various works of that time that their hope, their feeling, their yearning for Mashiach that is finally here, all of that destroyed. This imposter really broke the hopes of so many people and really further weakened the morale of Eastern European Jewry. Because just put yourself into the people's shoes back then. And this, of course, leads to a spiritual decline when people lose their hope, when they lose their faith, when the Mashiach lets them down. This wasn't a very great, this wasn't a very good situation for the Jews at that time. And unfortunately, that led to many other problems in the community some people who were praying for this hope saw that their prayers led to the wrong type of salvation. And along came certain rabbis who took advantage of the vulnerable people at the time. And uh, they would lead but not inspire or their leadership wasn't a very qualified Jewish leadership or people 
paid for the rabbinic positions, but were not the ones who were qualified to be rabbis. And so now you had rabbinic corruption that became very common during that period, and yet unworthy individuals who would purchase the right to serve as rabbis for their communities. Maybe they would pay this right to the noblemen. And by the way, there was a precedent of that even in the times of the temple. In the times of the Hanukkah story, which we're going to celebrate next week, if you go back to the history of Hanukkah, there were Jews, including Jason, who purchased, who paid for the position of being high priest of Kohen Gadol. So unfortunately, that's what was happening again in Europe. And local, you had local conflicts in the Jewish communities that really, with all the corruption, you think Zuma's bad. Well, you know, we had of it, no shortage of it in our own backyard, except we sometimes handle it and deal with it, not sh- and not just, you know, shove it under the rug. But this led to further decline in the community. You could just imagine what was going on then. You have rabbinic figures who aren't very fond of prayer. The intellectual, academic Jews were the ones getting the attention when it came to, to study. And the ignorant were just seen as peasants and no attention, no heat paid to them. And this really caused a widespread weakening of the Jewish soul of the connection to God that is so important and it undermined the spiritual value and life of the Jewish people. So it's not to say that there was nothing positive that happened after 1648, but of course there were many good things that happened then too, many glimmers of light and positive developments that did happen then. But nevertheless, if you think about the incidents of those days. If you place yourself in the shoes of Jews at that time, it wasn't very pleasant. You know, the rabbis, if you couldn't pay for the position, they didn't have the good qualified rabbis, couldn't find a job as a teacher because no one could afford to hire one. The community was literally decimated. Those amazing institutions we talked about before, many of them were forced to shut down. And People themselves hardly had what to eat. The community became so impoverished. The majority of Jews around at the time could hardly even learn. And how would one react? How would you react? And for some, the answer was seclusion, was I'm going to be a religious ultra-Orthodox Jew. I'm going to live in the ghetto and the shtetl, lock myself away, seclude myself from the rest of the corruption of the assimilation of the community. And during this period, what happened was many pious, well-intentioned Torah scholars really decided to escape their dismal surroundings. They pursued a lifestyle of extreme ascetism. They would fast frequently, sometimes for days in a row. People would disengage from the community, especially the more scholarly. You know, Who are you going to engage with? Most people are working and are illiterate. They don't even know how to learn. They're ignorant. So this slowly led to one aspect in the community where the scholars began disengaging from the community and they separated themselves from a worldly life, dedicating themselves completely to the study of Torah, to the exclusion of all other matters. Some, like I said, fasting, hurting themselves, sort of negating their physical bodily needs. And it was quite normal for people to fast in that era because they felt that this was maybe a tikkun, some kind of atonement for the problems going on for the Jews at that time. And then you could imagine the reaction of this type of behavior from the more popular Jews. While you have the ascetics who found 
satisfaction in their secluded, exclusive lifestyle, separating themselves from the masses of the community, what happens to the rest of the people? And also you have this elitist, not that it doesn't exist anymore, but I think much less so. And you had these elitists, those who were more scholarly and seen, you know, were condescending, patronizing towards the simpler Jews who probably needed all the more encouragement. So this whole shift and rift in the community certainly didn't add to light. It wasn't a Hanukkah situation. Unfortunately, you could imagine how it added more gloom, melancholy, moroseness. It became a very dark and lugubrious situation for the Jews at that time. By the beginning of the 18th century, the Jewish people, in a sense, described as fainted. It was just not a good situation. And then... Against this backdrop comes the Baal Shem Tov and begins to disseminate his teachings based on Jewish mysticism, based on the teachings of Kabbalah, like I said, ancient teachings of Judaism, but making them very relevant. We talked a little bit about the Baal Shem Tov in previous, in previous weeks, but he, he was an orphan child at a very young age. He was born in 1698. By the time he was five, both his parents were deceased already, and he didn't have it easy growing up. He used to wander in the forest. And when he grew older, he was a simple guy, a balagala, what they call a, a wagon driver, a bus driver. He was the one who would ferry the kids to the schools and then became a teacher's assistant. And that's when, when he was spending time with the little kids, is when he began his teaching career. Perhaps he started teaching the young children, but soon he became known as a very effective miracle worker. And that's when he got his reputation, the Baal Shem Tov. Baal Shem Tov means a master of a good name. And so he got this reputation. People started flocking to him. And by the time he was 36 years old in 1734, that's when he really became popular and started to, as the song goes, he would do Hafatzot HaMayanot. He would teach the teachings, disseminate the teachings, the Hasidic teachings. And what I'd like to do is go through a few of those teachings and see how they were relevant to the challenges, to the difficulties that Jews faced at that time in Eastern Europe and how his teachings were an answer to those problems, to those challenges. So I'm not sure which way is a better way to go, to look at the challenge of the time or to look at the specific teachings. But... Let's go through a few of those teachings and see how he was able to counter the situation that was going on then. And we could go through it briefly and maybe if you have some points that you want to share or tell me which one of these specific teachings. And again, this is just a sampling of some of the famous Hasidic teachings. It's worthwhile to hear your opinion, your perspective on this. Let's look at some of the things that were going on. One of the famous teachings was that there are many ways, there are multiple ways that every person could worship, could serve God. And in fact, the Baal Shem Tov specified, he said that when people are traveling, you might not have enough time to pray. 
I'm not talking about you going on holiday. On a holiday, you probably have even more time to pray. But he talks about people who are involved in business. And they have to support their family. And the business is very demanding. And all types of challenges that we have. So you're, you're, st- you're, you're traveling. You're, you're stuck in your office. You're in the factory. You're, you really don't have much time to pray. You don't have much time to study Torah. You don't have much time to do the things, the normal things that a Jewish person is supposed to do. Well, the Baal Shem Tov said, don't be pained by this. Because God needs us to serve Him in many different ways. Sometimes in one manner, sometimes in another manner. And He says this is the real reason that the opportunity to travel to wherever it might be is because maybe among our travels, God has a specific mission for that, for us. Like a verse in Tehillim, it says, May Hashem that the footsteps of man are actually planned out by God. So there are so many ways we could serve God. And just because you can't serve God one way, doesn't mean there isn't an alternate way. And of course, if we consider the things, the events of that time, when you had the, you had the divide between the scholars and the non-scholars, as we were describing, the Baal Shem Tov says, no, everyone has a way to serve God. Just because a scholarly person is able to know God better because he studies more and I don't have the time because I'm at work. Don't be disparaged. Don't be disappointed by that. Guess what? There's another way for you to serve God. You could serve God on your travels. You don't have to mind your own business all the time. You can engage with another person. You can inspire another person. In fact, the Talmud tells us that in some ways, the business person is more effective than the rabbi. And I can tell you that from experience, both because I had my days in business and people like, you know, oh, you're a rabbi, of course, believe you. You know, like when an old lady once called me, she said, her son has gone Meshuggah. I said, what do you mean? How's he Meshuggah? Is he, has he moved to Michigan? He's a Michiganer? She says, no, no, no. He's wearing a yarmulke. I didn't raise him that way. He started keeping kosher and he's going to shul every day. That's crazy. I said, but, you know, I do that too. She says, rabbi, don't. Who are you fooling? You know, I, you get paid to do that. And the Baal Shem Tov was saying that we each have our own unique way of serving God. It doesn't just take the scholars, the elitists. Everyone has their way to study, to, to worship God. You could study, you could pray in your way. That's not to negate the importance of davening with a minion at shul. Not just when you can, but to make an effort all the time to. And studying, and we have to make the effort to do so. The Baal Shem Tov was in no way downplaying or compromising in any way, uh, negating that, but he was emphasizing that just because you can't do it, or you don't have the time to, doesn't mean you're any less worthy because there are so many different ways one could worship God. Another famous teaching the Baal Shem Tov was, he said that how to serve God with joy. And he described how crying is so detrimental because we need to serve God with joy. And he said, of course, that's understandable. Sometimes people have tears, especially when it was a difficult, sad time. All the terrible suffering and challenges, the poverty, the false hopes that they experienced in those days. But nevertheless, he says, it's important. If your tears are tears of joy, if it's tears of hope, then it's okay. But if it's just depression, if it's just feeling remorseful, one good deed can overpower, can outdo a thousand sighs and cries. So considering the spiritual downturn of those days, the Baal Shem Tov taught that it shouldn't be, one shouldn't be sad, but rather one 
should be joyous and happy. And in fact, by the way, the original Hasidim were called the Freilicha, the joyous and happy ones. That was another famous teaching. One of the famous teachings of the Baal Shem Tov is to infuse Judaism with joy, with Simcha. This is Soul to Soul on 101.9 IFM. Welcome back to Soul to Soul. Chag Sameach, Chag Gaula, Rosh Hashanah Chassidus today. And we're talking about some of the concepts, some of the fundamental ideas, teachings that the Baal Shem Tov introduced, or rather emphasized some ancient teachings, and thereby inspiring the Jewish community of his time. So far we talked about how we said there are so many ways to worship, to serve God, and each person must do it in their own unique way. We can talk a little bit more about that in a moment, and also about serving God with joy. Another teaching he said was that when you carefully look at, you you think about your bodily needs, and we talked a little bit before about one of the problems in those days was the ascetics, the hermits, who would completely remove themselves from a normal physical lifestyle. They would fast. They would ignore their bodily needs. They wouldn't take care of themselves. They would just separate themselves from the rest. And so the Baal Shem Tov said that this isn't a good idea. You cannot have these social divides and, and see yourself as superior, as elitist, as aloof from the rest of the community. You cannot just separate yourself. That is not going to in any way help our community. We have to bridge the divide. We have to bridge that gap. We have to bring people together. We can't have the elitists and the rest of the people because that was not helping anything. And so the Baal Shem Tov said that when we refrain from our taking care of our bodily needs, when we break away from our physical material needs, that's not the Torah approach to life. And so he begged and he inspired us Hasidim not to behave like that. And he really fought hard against people rejecting their physical needs. And he really encouraged that people shouldn't forsake their bodily needs, rather to engage the physical and the spiritual together. We talked about another issue at that time was that people weren't so engaged in prayer. Some didn't have the time. Some were more academic and focused more on the on the intellectual elements of Judaism, of study, and neglecting to pray. And so the Bashem Tov put a major emphasis on the importance of prayer, that it shouldn't just be, God's my ATM machine, God, I need some cash today, turn to God when someone's not well, when we need something from God. But the Baal Shem Tov taught that prayer is a real moment of intimacy, of connecting with God. And he said, that is a whole different approach than just turning to God to answer my prayers, to fulfill my needs. The Baal Shem Tov said, prayer is about a relationship with Hashem. And so the Baal Shem Tov inspired his followers to reclaim their spiritual identity, to have a connection, a relationship with God, spoke about how this idea of praying to pray is to connect. And then finally, one more teaching. And I see somebody asked me to just talk, to just elaborate on these a little more. So I will in a moment. But one more teaching I think is fundamental. And if we think about this final teaching that I want to share, perhaps we can actually bring them all back together. And that is the idea that he says, the Baal Shem Tov taught, that we have to recognize that God is everywhere. And therefore, God's always with you, no matter where you are, no matter what the situation is. You got to be happy. You got to think and believe that God is with you, that God's watching over you. And that's very important because if you open the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, at the very beginning, this 
idea is taught that when you constantly you see yourself in the presence of the king, think about when a person's in the presence of a celebrity, perhaps. You know how you behave. You know, you're in your top performance. You're really trying to impress. Well, people often think of God as distant. Of course, God exists, but we don't think about God as being part of our life. And especially when things aren't going right. Has God abandoned me? Has God neglected me? But the reality is, the Baal Shem Tov taught, obviously it's an ancient Jewish teaching, it's a basic tenet of Jewish faith, but really tried to emphasize the idea that God is present everywhere and in everything, including every single aspect and element of our lives. And so, when people were feeling a little bit distanced or neglected and abandoned by God, especially considering the harsh experiences that they just endured, well, he started to bring people closer to God. And he said, that's a reason for joy. And this really countered some of the melancholy, the depressed feelings that people had in that time. And I think with these powerful and relevant teachings, we could, it was something that everyone related to. The Baal Shem Tov was able to reach out to the simplest of Jews, to the peasant Jews, to the ignorant, illiterate Jews. And with beautiful stories and parables, these metaphors, he would illustrate his ideas. And the Baal Shem Tov was slowly but surely waking up Eastern European Jewry out of that state of faint that we described before. And of course, not surprisingly, Hasidus turned into a massive movement. He drew so many followers. Now, of course, there were many weary after Rashabtai Tzvi, after some sham rabbis at the time. There were many people suspicious. There were many people who were skeptical of this new movement. But slowly it gained, it gained traction. And eventually, after the arrest and liberation of the Alter Rebbe, ah, that's why today is called the Rosh Hashanah of Hasidus. Because with time, Hundreds of thousands were influenced by the Hasidic teachings and so many, so many people followed and joined the Hasidic. And you look at the presence of Chabad today around the world, but not just Chabad. You look at the Hasidic movements all over the world. You look at the influence, how Hasidic teachings have permeated everyday Jewish life that we have today. And the ideas, these ideas, that we could even discuss them a little further, how the Baal Shem Tov highlighted and emphasized these teachings to the extent that so many people caught on and it became so widespread at that stage, many people followed on. Of course, there was the opposition. And of course, the Vilna Gon and others had their concerns, but ultimately, not a trace of hypocrisy, of, not a trace of, of, uh, <laughs> not a trace of any heresy was found in the Hasidic teachings. And this was something that inspired Jewry at that time. And in our concluding moments, we'll just visit, revisit some of those teachings and see how we can apply them in our lives today, how we can make these Hasidic teachings a real part of everyday life on this Yutes Kislev, this day of celebration. This is Soul to Soul on 101.9 IFM. And we're back here in Soul to Soul. I'm Rabbi Ari Kievman. Let's just re-examine some of these teachings of the Baal Shem Tov. Number one is if we recognize God is present everywhere. This is a teaching anyone and everyone can be inspired with. We're never alone. You are never alone. Wherever you are, God is always with you. And that is 
the core of all these teachings. So let's quickly review five teachings of the Baal Shem Tov. He said there are so many ways to serve God. If we see God as distant and detached from the world, then obviously it makes sense to assume that, oh, there's only one way for me to reach God and maybe I should... If I can't... If I can't worship God by going to shul and doing that and it's impossible, then what could I do? But if I recognize that in every way we could serve God in all aspects of my life, even on a holiday, it's not vacation. Vacation means my time is vacant and empty. But even on holiday, I uplift the day, spending time with my children, even in the car, davening with them, thinking some thoughts. That we worship God in every way. And here's another thing. You get in the car and sometimes the kids get into a little fight. Now, serve God with joy, the Baal Shem Tov taught. Why should I be happy if I don't feel happy? If my brother has something more than I do and the kids start getting into a little bit of tense situation on the long hour drive to Umschlanger, wherever you're going. Well, the Baal Shem Tov said, there's so much in life that gets into the way of happiness. But... If we think about God's presence with us wherever we are, there's something to recognize, to be happy about. Think of how much any person, even the most common lowly person, would rejoice over being in the presence of a celebrity if we recognize that we're in God's presence. The greatest celebrity of all, the king of all kings, in our presence all the time. Don't you think there's something to be proud and happy about forever, always? And not only that, doesn't that uplift our spirits? Doesn't that... Make us realize we're not alone. There's nothing to be worried about. Even when we're in not the best situations, God will help us. And that's why the Baal Shem Tov taught not to forsake the body. If we see God as distant from the physical world, then how could the body be regarded as anything but an obstacle that needs to be shunned because my food is getting in the way and my Exercise is getting in the way. It's, it's terrible. It's either physical needs. They're a distraction from my spiritual approach to life. But if God is present everywhere, that means the body, not just the body, but our bodily needs, our physical needs as well, are an instrument with which we could serve God. And so we shouldn't neglect it. We shouldn't sublimate it. What we should do is use it to the best of our ability. And that's why we could find time every day, wherever we are, to pray. We could beseech God for the things that we need, whether God is near or distant, whether I'm a good Jew or not. No such thing as not a good Jew. But the point is that if I see God everywhere, and if I could have a conversation with God, because God is not just the God of the elite, God is my God. God is your God. Everyone's God. And so, prayer isn't just asking God to fulfill our needs, but it's just a a sense of closeness, of connecting with my Creator. And then we could really truly live our lives more meaningfully, more purposefully, because I recognize God's with me wherever I am. Yes, ideally I should dive in a shul, but I'm on holiday, wherever it is, still connect to God wherever I might be. And finally, I think, if we put all that, and we recognize that if God is with me everywhere, this is a powerful teaching that when I... When I implement that and I and I inculcate those beliefs in my life then I could really live a really truly meaningful and purposeful life like if I could take these ideas with me on holiday now then I might not be at true I might not be in school as one of the kids you know in school I might recognize and spend time to study and pray every day but even on holiday I could do that too
And I think this is an important message we could take with us. And this is part of what the Baal Shem Tov was teaching is that we have to recognize God's presence with us wherever we might be. And so on this day, on the day of the Rosh Hashanah of Hasidic teachings, we could celebrate these teachings and celebrate how these ideas have become so widespread. And if we could just live these ideas in our life, I think we'll all have a more meaningful, purposeful, and spiritually uplifting lifestyle. So my dear friends, next week is Hanukkah. If you're in town, come to our menorah lightings. Every night at Santon City, we'll be having the tallest menorah in Africa lit. You could also join other menorah lightings in town. They'll be at Norwood Mall. They'll be at Kosher World. There'll be menorah lightings everywhere. You'll probably, you could even join it. Would you like a menorah on top of your car? You could just call us at Chabad House and you could spread the light. It might be a little gloomy and dark out there today, but if you put a menorah on your car, you will brighten this world. And I'm not just talking about a candle lit, you know, that isn't really making a difference, but with the light of these teachings of Hasidus, you can inspire yourself and you can inspire and brighten the whole world around you. So, you could bring in Hanukkah a little early. Bring it in today. You don't have to light your menorah yet, but kindle the room in which you're in. Kindle the car in which you're in. Kindle the road in which you're traveling on. Brighten up the people you are interacting with today by inspiring them. Share with them some of these ideas we talked about today. It will hopefully inspire you as it inspired me. And that's just a little taste of the teachings of Hasidus. So my dear friends, I wish you a, not just a good Shabbos for tomorrow, but a good Yamtev, a Shana Tova. You should be inscribed and sealed in a year of learning, of being inspired by the teachings of Hasidus. And hopefully these teachings will permeate our lives and inspire us. Because when we're inspired, we could influence and inspire all those around us. Just like the lights of your candle. You take a light. The beautiful power of light is that you take that existing candle and you could illuminate and kindle so many more and so many others. So brighten your life and brighten those lives around you. And don't wait. Carpe diem sees that moment today. Wishing you a good Yom Tov, Shana Tova, a good Shabbos, and a happy Hanukkah.